watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm not sure I like being described as a malfunction. You all become unpeople, undoing unthings, untogether. We want freedom and we want it now! Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And go, beat the war gong! And this episode, we're off to the planet Solos, where we encounter the mutants. But before we tackle that, Don's going to take a look at the mail. Yes, yes I am. Regarding our musical holiday special, Doctor Who 60s, 70s, and 80s said, I would have bet my house on you guys not enjoying the Delaware theme. And you would have kept it. To be fair, Barry Letts made the right choice in deciding not to use it. It's an interesting, quirky take, but not really suitable as a TV theme tune. I think we can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. Dave Columbus says, started with Tom Baker in the 70s, but still love the original 1963 theme the best. I'm the same way. I like the original and complain about all the rest, even though some of them are quite good. And Philip Cully says, apropos of nothing, the McCoy theme is one of my favorites, probably because it was my first Doctor Who theme. That is also Anthony's favorite. And that is the hill he has chosen to die on. And when he does, I will draw penises on his forehead with a Sharpie. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to Day of the Daleks. Astrozon Dalebert Zebulon says, This story always seemed both ultra low budget, low effort, and ultra 70s, but I love it. I would agree. Mm -hmm. Keith Burton said, This story is probably the most famous example of a target novelization surpassing the broadcast episode. In the book, Terrence Dick shows us more of the nightmarish future under Dalek occupation. The original ending is restored, and the Daleks are depicted as genuinely terrifying to both humans and Algrons. So many fans experienced the book first and were a little disappointed when they eventually saw the original episodes. I believe the strong impression left by the novelization played a large part in the creation of the special edition. Sounds like a legit theory to me. What do you think, Annie? Yeah, I haven't read the novelization, but I can believe that. Very much so. Nathan Law says, I personally think the Daleks actually being interested in the psychology of their slaves and finding paradigms that allow them to get more productivity out of them makes them even more evil. There's a reason why I think, for the most part, when other writers handle the Daleks, they're far more effective than Nation does. And this is another example of smart Daleks in the Whitaker mold. The Daleks in Power and Evil didn't just exterminate everyone either. Both had plans that manipulated people to achieving their ends, and I think that actually makes them better as villains. Well, as we know, Nation tended to get paid by the location, so his scripts tended to move (laughs) along more than characterize the Daleks. Bill Lamont says, I love how funny you all are. The fake movie trailer was hilarious. What fake movie trailer? (laughs) On that same note, (laughs) Kieran James Evans says, I like the not Terminator intro. It's strange how similar the ideas are. As for the story, the Daleks are the weakest part. In general, I'd rate it 7.5 out of 10. Amusingly enough about the intro, that was sort of an unintentional collaboration. Riley wrote Mm -hmm. his summation. I heard it and said, I know exactly what this needs. And the very next night, I went and wrote the not Terminator legally distinct theme. And it worked pretty well. Chat Grande 67 says, tell it to the Marines. It's old Navy slang from John Pertwee's Navy days for talking rubbish. Good to know. I've learned something hmm. today. Dave Columbus says, my view of this story has increased since my previous viewings. The controller was a deeply themed character. Anat was a woman who was never a damsel in distress. And as all of you have said, the doctor wasn't a dick this time. Very true. <laughs> What boosted it most was finally getting a story that had actual time travel in the plot, something that almost never happened in classic Who, which is true <laughs> and amusing. Alan Seiler, whoever that could be, sounds made up to me. I made a prediction a while back that season nine is where the Watcher's crew's view of Pertwee would really begin to change, and I'm pleased to see that that may be happening. I would say so. As much as I love Pertwee's first two seasons, his next two are kind of a golden era for me. I love Day Of so much. I encourage Julie and Riley, if you have time, to watch the special edition. I would agree. As Don says, it makes a world of difference and makes lots of big and little improvements. And that's coming from someone who has loved the original and considers it top shelf Pertwee. I'd give the original a score of 8.5 Quizlings and the special edition a (laughs) 9.5. And this episode has inspired me. I enjoy listening to your show so much that I've decided to start my own podcast where we react to your episodes reacting to Doctor Who episodes. (laughs) It'll be called The Listeners to the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Catchy title, eh? Oh, please, that would be so delightful. (laughs) Mike Muncher says, As we listen to episode 74, I'm reminded that Pertwee worked with Ian Fleming in the Navy, and if I recall correctly, Christopher Lee. No wonder he considered his doctor a suave man's sort of spy figure. Sense? Hmm. Nick Rutherford said, 
I was really pleased you rated Day of the Daleks so highly. Me too. In fact, Season 9 is a high point of the Third Doctor's tenure for me. I love all the stories. I have a particular soft spot for the much maligned mutants, as the cave mouth scenes were filmed a mile or so from where I grew up. Okay, that's pretty awesome. And the Childer's Caves are 10 minutes from where I live now, and I've been several times. A fascinating place. Hopefully you'll get the chance to visit sometime, if you ever, COVID permitting, get back to the UK. And we're almost done. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Curse of Peladon. John Mariano says, Doctor Who meets Alf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kieran James Evans says, I think it's an eight for me for this one. A welcome break from the Earthbound stories. And yes, Pertwee is less of a dick. We have our theme for this one. <laughs> Mention of the Sea Devils is rather topical, dot, dot, dot. Yep. Beardo Beanick says, although it introduces to the galaxy the most awesome walking eyeball, I think the story only deserves six out of ten Agadors. Funny how different people will interpret the same story completely differently. Alan Seiler once again says, when you watch Doctor Who stories in a random order, you miss things. For instance, it's only when you do a strict in-order watch through that you realize how significant this collection of weird aliens is and how long it's been since the show has done anything like this. It really stands out when you consider how Earthbound the series has been for the past few seasons. This story, for many reasons, is such a joy. It not only plays against your expectations of the Ice Warriors, it plays against what you'd expect to get from a Pertwee story. Eight Federation delegates out of ten. <laughs> and that is the mail. Thank you, Don. I like how people have started giving us their own ratings. That's been pretty fun to hear. That is fun. But as a reminder to everyone listening, we really love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've heard, we do like to try and read them out on the show. We've started getting rather a lot of mail. So if we didn't read yours out, please write to us again. We'll try and get you in next time. But please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watches4D, or you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. Anyway, taking a peek behind the scenes on The Mutants. The concept for this story sort of goes back all the way to 1966 when now producer Barry Letts submitted an idea entitled The Mutant to the Doctor Who production team. And that idea included the concepts of an alien species that evolved in stages much like a butterfly. While his idea was unceremoniously rejected at the time, it was one that stuck in his mind. Fast forward five years, when following the success of The Claws of Axos, the Bristol Boys, that is Bob Baker and Dave Martin, submitted further ideas for the show to the production office. One of these ideas focused on the oppression of natives on an alien planet, inspired by Martin's disgust over apartheid in South Africa. Further to this, script editor Terence Dix was interested in having a serial that dealt with the demise of British colonialism. Add in Letts's concept, and the general idea of the mutants is born. Now, if you think back to The Claws of Axos, the Bristol Boys had needed a lot of support to refine and deliver their scripts. With this in mind, Dix chose to work closely with the duo, and with a lot of patience. Their serial was given the working title Independence, and as scripts for each episode were delivered, progress was reviewed and tweaks to the narrative were suggested. By the time episode 3 was delivered, the working title had changed to The Emergence, before everyone finally settled on The Mutants. During scripting, Dix asked that a subplot about cloning was removed from the final episodes as he felt that it had added an unnecessary level of complexity to the serial. Another change came in the situation surrounding Kai's eventual transformation. Originally, it was to be triggered by the Doctor turning the crystal into a liquid form and injecting it into Kai's neck, after which he would eventually transform into an iridescent sphere. The original script also had mutants being referred to as munts, with the original being both a contraction of the phrase mutant native, as well as a genuine derogatory term used by white settlers in South Africa to refer to the native peoples. However, this was something that got changed at the request of BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh, who felt that months might be misheard for a rather offensive term, and so it was changed to mutts. I usually don't stop here, but I'm going to stop you here, because who in the world thinks that munt would get confused with the other one, which I will not say, even though we do say bad words, I won't. But we use mutt, and that's not really any better. No. In fact, it still offended me the entire time. I mean, it's probably not quite as offensive as the other word that also <laughs> rhymes with months and certainly wouldn't get the BBC in hot water for putting it out on air. I think that's probably the train of thought. You don't think they can be called runts? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, Anthony. Back on track. 
As director, we have Christopher Barry, who most recently directed The Demons and had been working on the show ever since the first Dalek serial way back in season one. With The Mutants, he was unhappy with the political elements of the scripts and chose instead to emphasise the science fiction side, much to the chagrin of the Bristol Boys. Barry also made the decision to cast Rick James, no, not that one, as Cotton, (laughs) which made this an unusually multiracial serial for the time. That being said, Cotton was originally scripted as a Cockney from the East End of London, and he was called Cotton from the beginning. And Baker and Martin were rather surprised that his scripted speech patterns were not at all altered, since Rick James obviously has a very strong Caribbean accent as he hails from Antigua and Barbuda. Joining Christopher Barry on the main creative staff, we have Jeremy Bear making his first contribution to the show as designer. Outside of the show, he worked on Dixon of Doc Green, Zed Cars, Yes. Last of the Summer Wine, and The Basil Brush Show. As costumer, we have the first of eight outings on Doctor Who for James Aitchison, who will go on to actually be a pretty big name in the costuming world, working on some pretty big movies such as Time Bandits, Brazil, Highlander, The Last Emperor, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, and Man of Steel. So pretty impressive there. And rounding out the team, we have the final outing of Tristram Carey as composer, He had previously handled the score for the Daleks and Marco Polo from Season 1, and the Daleks Master Plan and the Gunfighters from Season 3. Yes, the best one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) Too Riley. Filming of the Mutants was plagued by a number of accidents and other misfortunes. Katie Manning managed to re-injure the ankle that she had twisted during recording of Terror of the Autons. Production assistant Fiona Cumming became unwell and fell asleep without putting the unit's cash in hand in the hotel vault, which actually proved to be a positive as the hotel porter looted the vault that evening and disappeared with everything that was in it. So, good? Good, good. (laughs) And finally, during filming at the Chislehurst Caves, the team was caught out by a power outage that resulted from the ongoing industrial action, that whole miner strike we've briefly referenced in previous episodes, and they had to find their way out in the pitch dark, And then finally, over the course of production, numerous sets and props were either broken, incomplete, or just altogether missing. So kind of not the best production. The final serial, once they actually managed to make it, was broadcast between the 8th of April and the 13th of May 1972. And without any strikes, did decently in the ratings. Anyway, with that, we move into our short summary, which is in the hands of Riley this episode. Interplanetary deliveries? What a headache. Well, when those other companies aren't brave or foolhardy enough to go, trust Doctor Who for reliable on-time delivery. That's Doctor Who Express. Our companions are replaceable, your package isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Futurama. Proper address not necessary. We don't even need the name of who you want it delivered to. (laughs) We'll just bumble around and find him eventually. Definitely a different experience than when I went to the post office this week. (laughs) All right, let's talk about it. Episode one. Well, there's the It's guy from Money Python. Yeah, the It's guy. It's You knew you're off to a good start right there. That opening shot is wonderfully atmospheric with all that fog. The, all the fog and the music is not offensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Julie, of all of the serials this season, this is not the one I would have picked for you to say not offensive. It's not in your face, synth. Which is a nice surprise than what we've had most of the Pertwee era. So I'm very, very happy. And it does help with the atmosphere at the very beginning. I love how we damn the music with faint praise. (laughs) Wow, that's almost musical. And of course, immediately plus one to Quarry Quarry. You know, it's good to get it out of the way quickly. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. It's at this point where we first get introduced to the ridiculous outfits that the overlords wear. Because yes, overlords. And yeah, this was when I first made the comment of how insulting is it to call them mutt? And that's where it all started in the first five minutes. It's meant to be insulting because candidly, the British Empire was pretty racist at times. Wait, wait, this is somehow about the British Empire? (laughs) Tell me more! (laughs) All right, everyone, take a shot, because yes, this story is all about colonialism. But in any case, the whole thing is very offensive. But to be fair, in telling this story, it does a very good job of telling the story. Yes. Yes. Complete with the segregationist signs. 
they have up. Yes. It does do some really good world building early on. It does. And from the very beginning, once we actually find out what's going on with the Earth Empire's retreat from Solos, it's all of the language that Britain was using in the retreat from its empire. It's a, you are now ready to govern yourselves because we have come in and we have enlightened you. It's, um, it's very on the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. I'm going to point out the positive aspects of the serial. <laughs> and let's go ahead and talk about it because it's very clear from the very first episode, Stubbs and Cotton. Yes. That partnership. Wow. They really put a lot of effort in the writing to like say, you know what? We're going to make these two guys really important. It's just, it's unusual and it's appreciated to see the guard characters that you usually are just expected to get knocked out. They're real people and they're actually very funny and interesting and endearing with each other. And what I actually love about it even more is the fact that since they cast someone who is black skin color, is that usually your segregation you see in the tone of skin and it kind of flips it on its head a little bit and you expect him to be treated differently, but he's not because he's one of them. So it's a very interesting thing to see. And I'm kind of glad that they kept him cast as that character. I like the fact that as a duo, they just don't care. Yes. They're not your evil guards. They're just like, yeah, we just want to go home. So if you want to leave, it's fine. It definitely gives a sense of that old Austin Powers joke about the guard to Dr. Evil that (laughs) dies. And then there's a phone call to his wife and she gets informed that he died somehow. (laughs) It personifies these characters that are oftentimes in fiction, just considered red shirts or just people to knock out as you escape a prison. Yeah, I feel like that's something that Russell T. Davies was always good at, was making some of the more minor characters into real people. And I know he's a huge fan of this era of Doctor Who, and I'm wondering if that's something he picked up from a story like this. Yeah, maybe. Quite possible. Riley, I do want to just touch on, you said moving on to the positive, I don't actually think that this story being on the nose about colonialism is a negative. I actually kind of like how scathing and on the nose it is, because... There is a habit amongst us Brits and certain (laughs) segments of us Brits to look back on the empire as being an unambiguously good thing. And I think realizing that there may have been good aspects of our imperial past, but also recognizing that there were some things about it that were distinctly not good. I actually think that's something that this story, while being very, very obvious about it, still does well. And particularly in the 1970s, when a lot of attitudes were very much, we're losing the empire, the country's going to the dogs, everything is awful because we're losing our place in the world. Well, maybe our place in the world wasn't unambiguously awesome. I agree with you that I was just referring to the things that Julia was bringing up. (laughs) Ah, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the Doctor and Joe's mission, because they're sent this random box and just have to deliver it and they don't know who to. And why are the Time Lords even doing this? This seems like an intervention. This isn't a mission. This is a practical joke. There is no way they planned for this to actually work. This is just them screwing with the Doctor. Yeah, here you go. Yeah, go, go. We know you want to take the TARDIS somewhere. Figure it out. It's just pure dickery. I find it a little frustrating that the writers are trying to find a way to have this have them leave earth so it's not earthbound but i do get frustrated in that the way that they're making it happen is through the time lords it's not my favorite it's it's thin and the more you think about that aspect of the plot the more confusing it is it's very difficult because it also gives a sense of that talk about classic television it makes the doctor feel like a member of charlie's angels the time lords are charlie like go on an assignment you're all my angels go take care of that after exiling him to earth for interfering they send him on a mission to interfere basically yep Yep. bunch of goddamn hypocrites Uh, if we're talking about overlords then yes we all (laughs) know that the time lords are yet more overlords (laughs) Uh, yeah and we'll go on from there I'm going to take things down to a, a lighter note, and I want to talk about the costumes. Yes. yes. And I love most of the costumes. Joe's outfit is not my favorite <laughs> that she's had. It looked like carpet. Yeah, that paisley was not a good look. <laughs> or tapestries, I guess I would say. But I love what the Salonians, I loved what they had. All the wear that they had, the capes that they wore, and all that. I loved everything about them. The overlords, 
I hated it in that I would never want to wear it, but I think it worked for who they were. Yeah. So you're in high praise of Varen's discount Thulsa Doom cosplay <laughs> that he walks around in. <laughs> I actually am. Okay. I thought it was lovely because it gives such a great clash to the futuristic set to have these people dressed mm -hmm. like barbarians. All I know is this. I really want there to be a special edition of this. But the only change is the actor that plays Varen is replaced by Matt Berry. <laughs> just to take it way on over the top, because I think it would be a beautiful thing. That would be amazing. Yes, please. I do like the military costumes of the Overlords. The black, it gives them a very kind of fascist edge, which <laughs> continues to make this so fucking on the nose. Well, if they wanted to make it on the nose, they would have been wearing red. So there's that. Speaking of the Overlords, I love the Administrator. He's once again played by Jeffrey Palmer, who we last saw in Doctor Who and the Silurians, who is an absolute legend of TV. And he is such a moderating factor. He's very calm and very much like, yes, it's time for us to actually leave, versus the Marshal, who wants to keep living the glory days of the Empire lest he be reassigned to the Administrative Department on Earth. It just creates this really cool juxtaposition between the two and shows that the marshal is an extremist. Mm -hmm. Especially when the comments are made of independence versus genocide. Well, yes, this is a conversation that we can be having. The only thing that I had to say was that while I liked all the setup, it was very exposition heavy in this first episode. Mm -hmm. uh, and it does stay that way for quite a while. I'm like, guys, this is six episodes we could probably shorten this down because you're just telling me way too many things. Oh my gosh, how many times do we have to talk about independence? I get it. Yeah, this could have easily been four, but you can tell they had to stretch it out to pay for the mutant costumes. <laughs> yep. yep. I'm not even joking. Those things looked expensive. Speaking of the overlords, I believe it is this episode where we have the delightful overlord tune. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I really enjoyed that. See, this is one of the more interesting elements of this serial is the humor. There is a strong bit of humor that's thrown in, and it's not like the typical humor that I remember seeing on the show before, especially when we get to the joke at the very, very end of the serial. But I just thought that was an interesting touch to, for them to um, use that. I guess they needed humor in this because, as we've discussed, the subject matter is rather depressing. <laughs> the humor is very dry and at times even morbid, but I think it really works in the context of this story. Well, uh, our administrator gets killed. He probably would have had a chance to tell them if Kai hadn't kept interrupting. So, bad move, Kai. Oh, Kai. Uh, Varen's a moron. And at the end, I think Joe gets kidnapped. Yep. Surprise, surprise. And then, as we move into episode two, she gets the quickest case of Stockholm Syndrome I have ever seen. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kai's so pretty. Apparently. He is so pretty. He's kidnapped. No, no, I'm not leaving you. He just took you hostage. Like the last scene. Yeah. But the box is meant for him and he's probably the most attractive man on that entire planet. And he's perfect to be a member of the monkeys. <laughs> hey, my second crush was Davy Jones from the monkeys. My first crush was Eric Lindros of the Philadelphia Flyers. So I had a weird varying <laughs> taste of men. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say in my third was Kai. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. This is all we do now. We just talk about Julie's crushes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Talk about the Marshal, because he continues to just be an all-round dick. I think this is where Riley's rule on the transfer of dickery continues to be in yeah. place. Basically, it has to go somewhere. Just the way he consistently tries to force and blackmail the Doctor into opening the box is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. the Doctor even has to remind him to give the order not to harm Joe in the search after he's refused to search for Joe unless the doctor tries to open the box. It's like, dude. And then one of my favorites was when he was like, nothing is more important than opening this box. And the doctor's like, well, I can't open it. And he's like, oh, well, I have more important things to do. <laughs> you just said not even five seconds ago that it was the most important thing. So make up your damn mind. I think the marshal is more or less unhinged from the get go. So little bit. he's just a crazy bastard. And you know... A lot of these Doctor episodes are not complete unless we have climate control. <laughs> but we have the certainly not at all on the nose German scientist. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of noses in this story. 
And we are really mixing our history here because, you know, we didn't really use German scientists in Britain, but that was more of America after World War II. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, what can you do? But we had to have the weather control. Yes. That was key. But they never quite get to work properly. That's the difference here. That's very true. They could not get that working and all that. And I have a feeling that part of that had to do with the changing of the atmosphere that was naturally occurring on Solus, but I could be wrong. I think it was partly that and partly the Marshall and Jaeger just being kind of incompetent. Oh, well, yeah. obviously. That was an obvious one. Earth is pulling away from Solos. They're certainly not going to send their best people there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, when I know we already had the assassination and everything, but when the son of Aaron comes back on screen and you see his smug face and I'm just like, you haven't even said any words, and I already hate you. And then he says like five words, and then he's dead. That was quick. That solves you hating him. <laughs> yeah. It really does. <laughs> I'd like to just discuss the sets. We, mm, I think we've yes. seen everything now other than the Disco Cave and Sunderguard's underground lair. Oh, we haven't seen the camp set either. That was actually, I really enjoyed that set. That actually looked really good. But, you know... There was a lot of variety of sets, and they looked good. I thought they looked really good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually thought the camp set was the only set on the planet's surface, not including the disco cave, that looked like a studio set rather than something that was filmed on location. And that took me out of it just a little bit. It didn't bother me. I enjoyed it, Riley. I'm with you. Yeah, I thought it was just great... Just once again, just like we're talking about the Salonians, their costumes, it just it's a good clash to see more of a cave versus all of a sudden we're on a space station. We're going everywhere. We're seeing everything. I really like that. Let's talk about the picture that's painted of future Earth, because it's mentioned in episode one, and then Kai really paints it a lot more in episode two. The ground being too polluted, everyone lives in sky cities. We've effectively destroyed Earth at this point. And speaking of the monkeys, it was also commented <laughs> that everything was gray. So it really reminded me of only shades of gray. But <laughs> everything will tie back to a song. I promise you. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's bleak. It's not pretty. Anthony, this is a question for you. How many empires has Earth had and lost within the context of Doctor Who? Um, Seems like a lot. Eccleston refers to the fourth great and bountiful human empire in the first season of Resumed Doctor Who. So I assume that this one is either the first or second human empire. So has anyone actually tried to keep track of all this? I'm serious. Yes. Has Big Finish done it? <laughs> so there's actually a website out there where someone has basically tried to write the history of humanity according to Doctor Who. Oh, wow. And I will dig that out uh, if I can find it and put it in the notes so listeners, you can find it. Which human empire was Paul Muad'Dib Atreides? <laughs> <laughs> hey, if we talked about the sets and we've talked about the costumes, there's one important prop we have not talked about. <gasps> the Marshall's communication stick. I don't know why this hasn't caught on as the primary form of mobile communication. It's very practical. You look like Bob Barker with his old long microphone. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Can you get Instagram on it? I don't know, but you could probably get television reception on that thing. It's like an <laughs> antenna. And you could probably use it to hit people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it does all of the things. I think he has a little pocket. Does he have a little pocket in his front where he puts it in sometimes? Probably, <laughs> because did. as the many men that are in this serial, since they're all but one men, yeah, I bet he has pockets. Yes, manly men. <laughs> manly pockets. <laughs> Question. Are there female Salonians, or do they reproduce asexually? Like, what's the deal there? Do we just not see them because they keep them hidden away? That's a really good question. It wouldn't surprise me if they keep them hidden away. There was something that was a little bit misogynistic that happened in the first episode. When Joe and the Doctor were first captured, they only directed questions to the Doctor and did not directly speak to Joe. I assume they were all on some sort of female retreat. For the time frame, and then they're gonna come back at the end, like you guys have all turned into weird lizard creatures. What the hell? We were only gone two weeks. <laughs> but no, I have a feeling that they are just so low on the totem pole that they're not involved in any of this political scheming that's going on, and that they're just holed up in their homes cooking dinner. 
It'd be really funny if that, because of being isolated and shut out like that, that they actually knew the whole mystery all along. <laughs> they were just like quietly preparing, you know, like, well, we're all going <laughs> to turn into these mutants and then we're going to turn into uh, technicolor ghosts. So uh, let's go ahead and get ready for that. <laughs> and like everyone else is just fighting and killing each other. They have no idea. This episode is where we first start getting the inkling that Cotton and Stubbs are on the Doctor's side. Yes! I love when the Doctor is in the lab with Jaeger and Cotton's like, oh yeah, it would be chaos if anyone blew the station's power supply, which <laughs> the Doctor promptly does. <laughs> and meanwhile, Stubbs is helping out Varen, who's on the run in the station. And of course, that leads us to our cliffhanger with the Doctor heading towards the Transmat and Varen catching him and yelling, die, overlord, die, and cliffhanger in episode three. One thing that I was hoping to get, and we didn't get as much of it as, as I wanted, was I wanted a true like duo between Doctor and Varen. I thought it would have been a lot of fun, but Varen just was not having it. And I was like, man, you could have had so much fun with the Doctor, but you had to go be a dick. Varen comes in as a dick, and he leaves as a dick. <laughs> he learns nothing and doesn't care. At this point, he states that he hates Kai. Has this been mentioned before? <laughs> I think so, because he was, Varen was working for the overlords. Oh, I, I know, Don, that was sarcasm. Oh, sorry. It's just the whole thing of his, <laughs> his switching, but still doesn't accept the fact that Kai was right all along. Kai was right, but he's also really annoying and shouty. That is mm -hmm. true. Uh, you can understand not liking him. Kai speechifies too much. Kai's like that really, really obnoxious person who's always involved in student politics and is always found <laughs> giving like little mini rallies at the corner of the college quad. And everyone is like, dude, will you just shut up? Really, he needed Vicky to come in and properly tell him how to lead a rebellion. Don't we all? <laughs> che Vicky. <laughs> he and Joe do watch the firestorm together. How romantic. And they even have a little cuddle when a mutant shows up. <laughs> I enjoyed a lot of that. I loved how they did the firestorm. Not gonna lie, I thought that was actually pretty well done. And when he's explaining what happened with the mutants and everything, it's like the poor creature used to be a person. And I was like, I have so many feelings right now. Obviously, we learned more things about that. So that all changed. But at the time, I was like, oh, poor person. While we're on the topic of the mutants, it took me forever, maybe because of the darkness of the caves. I could not tell if the costume was meant to be like insect or reptilian. It took me forever and I'm still kind of like, is it a mixture of both? I mean, it's meant to be more insectoid. I said reptile a few minutes ago and I misspoke. Please don't leave any comments because I know I screwed up. But yeah, it looks more like a, a weird bug. I think most of us humans tend to find insects kind of repulsive. So I think that's deliberate in humanoid characters are turning into bugs fundamentally. I think it's partially that and partially since it was a metamorphosis of sorts, that makes the most sense with insects. Here on the planet Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we even have travel pods. We even have yes. travel pods in the cereal. There you go. The one thing that we didn't talk about was the model shot of the sky base. With the nice music that uh, happens for a moment? Yes, yes. That part was was wonderful. There's other shots of the sky base that I don't love as much, but the one in particular with the firestorm and everything, oh, beautiful. And this episode is, speaking of sets and models and the like, is where we actually finally get, you guys have called it the disco cave. I think of it as the psychedelic cave, but same effect. It's obviously the hottest club on Solos. This club <laughs> yes. has everything, <laughs> including terrible CSO. Yeah, bad CSO. Joe getting rescued by a mysterious man in a protective suit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is where we've already had like what I was talking about before, the clashing of the more old technology of swords and sandals versus modern space technology. That was strange. And now we have the cave sequence. That's really strange too. And this is where I think this entire serial just has like a whole weird vibe that goes through it. All throughout, everything just seems a little unusual, a little off, more so than your usual crazy Doctor Who serial. Occasionally it's boring and talky, and then there's just some super crazy ass weird shit. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then it goes back to being boring, and you're like, what? 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 No, what was that? And then you just don't know how to react. 
And what kills me is at times it's painfully obvious. So Joe gets rescued by a mysterious man in a protective suit. And then a couple of scenes later, Kai mentions this Sondergaard character. <laughs> yeah. I wonder who that could be. He didn't name drop yet, but he had mentioned that there had been somebody. Yeah. Also, another thing I want to touch on in terms of cultural identity. So Kai talks about when he finally gets hold of the container, it opens, it contains those tablets, and no one can understand them because the overlords have effectively destroyed the Salonian mm -hmm. culture, including their language. Mm -hmm. And that's not so much a British Empire thing, but you actually just look at Britain for that. And in the 70s, Welsh and Cornish as languages had more or less died out. Welsh has had a big resurgence in that time since. That's just big consonants trying to push that forward. That shouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. You heard me, Wales. Same thing happened in Scotland. Yeah. You've got, you know, what America did with the Native Americans. It's all over the place. It's not just the British Empire. Was anyone else hoping that what was in the box had nothing to do with anything? Like they were trying to reach him about his car's extended warranty? Just something you... Just me? Okay. Deliver it and it's a copy of Citizen Kane on DVD. <laughs> See, mm. at first I was surprised that it was happening so soon. I was like, really? It's only episode three? And then it was like, oh, well, we don't know what's written on it. I'm like, oh, okay. Then it makes sense that we opened it already because we just have to make this more drawn out. Because of the Time Lord's wonderful plan. Uh, it's... Fine. Uh, we get the it's guy again. Yeah. The witch guy? The it's, the it's guy. guy. It's. <laughs> Complete with soundtrack. Indeed. I want to touch on Solos's weird orbit. It has 500 years of spring. How? <laughs> <laughs> that is one jacked up orbit. It just doesn't rotate. Your Christmas vacation is amazing. <laughs> I'm no planetary scientist, but is it even theoretically possible for that to happen? Could a planet have seasons that long and yet still be close enough to its sun to sustain life? I don't know. If you know the answer, please write to us. <laughs> it's also fiction, so it's fine. Whatever works. One of the things I want to get to getting close to the end when the marshal decides, oh, how am I going to deal with all this? I'm going to trap everyone inside, including Stubbs and Cotton. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I love the two of them, and you know that the marshal's on to them, and it makes me sad. Before we wrap up, I do want to talk about the one character that I feel deserves an award for worst performance of the serial, and that's the old man in Varen's village. How dare you? <laughs> Sorry. And Varen's reaction when he realizes that he himself is mutating is pretty, uh, pretty hard to watch, because... He's built up such a loathing of the mutations because he spent too much time close to the marshal. Poor dude. That whole scene was just, it felt forced. Not gonna lie. A little bit. It also, again, would have been nice if there had been a woman in that village because then we would have been like, okay, yeah, there are some women there instead of a, oh no, everyone's gone. What they should have done was bring back Eileen Way, who was the old woman in the very first serial. Yes. As an old woman here. She just generically typecast her as an old woman on every single planet. Be amazing. So our cliffhanger here is the realization that everyone's getting trapped in the caves and gassed. And that's our cliffhanger. And that takes us into episode four, where they are promptly rescued by the man in the protective suit. Yes, the lead singer of Midnight Oil. <laughs> what I find interesting is like Joe is like, oh my gosh, it's it's so scary. I'm like, how do you not tell that it's a man in a suit, Joe? Yeah, and the doctor even says, whatever it is, we better follow it. And I was like, dude, it's clearly a man in a suit. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and also, I just honestly don't know Sondergaard. What's his accent? I think it's entirely made up because the actor's real name is John Hollis. Oh. Okay. He was in The Empire Strikes Back. He was in Flash Gordon. He's been Wait, in quite a lot of stuff. I bet I knew who he was. Was he the guy in Empire Strikes Back that had like the wraparound, like things over his ears? You mean the guy with the ice cream maker in Cloud City? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. He doesn't like him. Well, I loved him as Sundergaard. I love the character of Sundergaard. I love his costume. I love his strange accent, which kind of went from Nordic to German and back again. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, but. He's a really fun character, and it's in this episode particularly where I have the best scene, I think, of the entire serial. I'm not joking here. It's just a scene of him and the Doctor trying to figure out what's on those plates and trying to mm -hmm. break the code. That was the best part. And I'm like, yes, 
It's Doctor Who. He uses his intelligence. Let's watch him try to work something out instead of just karate chop somebody. <laughs> I loved anything with Sundergaard. I was like, man, if you had introduced him earlier, yeah, it would have like upset plot a little bit and things like that. But I just love him so much. All of him as much as possible all day, every day. I think the character of Sondergaard and particularly how they dressed him was kind of meant to take the piss a little bit out of British people who go to India mm. on a two-week trip <laughs> and really embrace Indian culture and suddenly convert to Hinduism and dress in <laughs> Indian clothing. And it's like, dude, you've been there for two weeks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, He's the overlord who's gone native. <laughs> At least he's been there for years, not for two weeks. That's true. I had a question, and I don't know if it was because of the production. I don't know if it was because of how these films were handled, but were there some weird things happening with some of the visuals? Because some of the angles looked really bad. There was a distortion on the lens. After yes. the eruption in Sonergard's lair, every single time they cut to like the shot off on the left. It got funky. It got weird. That had to be deliberate. That's not film degradation or anything right, like that. Right. That's a directorial choice. What was interesting about it is that if in the plot they were like, hey, there's a camera up there and maybe the marshal was seeing everything that was happening, like that would have made sense to me because it was mostly when it come from one direction. So at first I was like, oh, maybe there's some sort of camera that's set up of some third party looking in on this room. But that's not what they did. You're in the disco caves, baby. <laughs> Things are going to get funky and weird. It wasn't the disco cave. I found that interesting because it didn't really seem to make sense in the placement of those camera angles. Because there was a lot of other camera angles and weird things that they did with the camera that I was like, all right, this all makes sense. This all makes sense. But this one, I was like, I got nothing. Yeah, I really enjoyed the camera work a lot. There's some really good shots in episode five and six that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But in regards to this, it's so disorienting. Even though we don't know why it was done other than just to be weird, it would have been a lot more effective if that distortion was on both of those shots for the layer instead of just on one. Because like yeah. Julie was saying, if it's just on one, I'm sitting there as the viewer thinking... Am I supposed to know why this is like this on this side and not on the other? Is there, Are they trying to tell me something? <laughs> like mm -hmm. it, it, it really confused you. If it was like mix and match and sometimes it was like that on one and sometimes on the other, then I would, would have been like, oh, this is just artistic. This is just an artistic choice. Okay, well, let's go for it. That said, on the directorial angle, there's a scene in the disco cave going to call it that rather mm -hmm. than psychedelic cave since everyone else is calling it the disco cave where Christopher Barry uses some slow-mo as well as the CSO and this is an occasion I think the CSO actually works because these caves are so weird that having like that little outline around everyone gives it almost an ethereal effect yeah and I actually thought huh he's using the weakness of the technology to actually do something cool on film he does a couple of tricks I actually like the CSO that's done in the cave Specifically in the disco cave. Yeah, I think it for the most part works there. But can I talk about the fact that how did I not notice that Sundergaard is wearing this protective suit, but he doesn't have the pants tucked into his boots? So it's all completely <laughs> useless. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't die, so it's okay. No, but he nearly does. He goes into the cave with the doctor. The doctor grabs the crystal and then has to go back and rescue Sondergaard, who didn't even need to go into the cave in the first place. And the doctor pulls him further into the cave. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's like about to fall. And the doctor says, come on, man, and pushes him in. like, just put him out of the room. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly done. He can't take anymore. What the hell, Doctor? And uh, this has some pretty nasty effects on him. Like later, just as they're finding a way out of the caves to the surface, he just collapses. Mm-hmm. Doctor, I realize you weren't intentionally being a dick, unlike in season eight, but you've kind of screwed this poor dude over here. Just a little bit thoughtless. Is it time to shift back to the sky base? Because I got some oh. things. Yes. <laughs> We're about to get to one of the other best parts of the serial. With Varen storming the uh, <laughs> the sky base? Is that what we're talking about? First, I want to start off with much earlier in the episode. They're having more conversations with Professor Yeager, and he actually comes out and talks about population control. And I was like, when were we ever talking about population control? And then it's like, oh, it's not really population control. It's we're going to kill all the Salonians. And, and that's how we control the population is just by wiping out an entire race because genocide. And we have a German saying it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. On the nose. <laughs> very, very on the nose. <laughs> but we also have an Earth investigator who's going to be on his way. Oh, 
So good. And was anyone else triggered on the fact that the one guy was like, I need to be on the planet surface without a mask on? <laughs> triggered. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. But dang it, I was also kind of triggered by the fact that Joe wanted some lunch at the beginning of the cereal <laughs> and she never got to eat. Mm. Oh, yeah. I didn't even pick up on that. How long do you think this cereal lasts? How long do you think she goes without food? It was overnight because she was in the caves with Kai. And I think it was daytime the next day. So however long their days are, I don't know how long, but a long time. I really hope that Kai found her something to eat. I'm sure he did. He seems like yeah. the kind of guy who would. We're going to headcanon that. <laughs> yes. yes. Absolutely. All right. More things on Skybase. Who wants to go? I mean, Varen. He's like, I'm going to go storm the Skybase for what the Marshal's done to my people. That you helped with. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's stupid. Yes. You're an absolute bellend. and i mean it leads us into our cliffhanger because he inevitably gets gunned down by the marshal who breaks the hull while doing it sucking baron into space and nearly everyone else that oh peak weirdness with the cso there it was amazing just the choice of the shots and i understand because that's a hard hard effect for doctor who at this time period to pull off but you know what? They tried, and I really <laughs> appreciate They said, let's try to put it on screen, and they did, and it was bizarre and wonderful. 10 out of 10 for effort, 7 out of 10 for achievement. <laughs> but I just want to point out that they all should have died. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, just so we're all aware. And I have to say that... Uh, This is so nitpicky, but it really did crack me up. While everyone else is on the floor doing the whole gag of like, oh, it's sucking us out. And they're just kind of rolling on the floor. The marshal, the actor playing the marshal, just kind of seems like he's doing a (laughs) (laughs) two-step. He's just shuffling in the background. He's marvelous. Oh, so good. (laughs) But still, that was an awesome cliffhanger. I know, like I said, it wasn't executed perfectly. But my God, it was exciting and wild and really unexpected that they were going to show it like that. And it was I greatly enjoyed it. By the way, I just remembered we spoke about The Empire Strikes Back earlier. And I want to talk about this before I forget. The actor who plays Kai, yes. Garrett Hagen, he was Biggs in the original Star Wars. What? Biggs! What? Biggs! Yeah. It's oh. the mustache, right? That's what we don't know. Yes, exactly. It. Oh, I was sitting there. I was like, I know this guy. Why do I know this guy? I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I went and looked it up and I was like, no way. It made me very heavy. I bet he taught Mark Hamill how to play annoying and whiny for Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) I bet he taught him how to do it. All right. So episode five. Episode five. Bombs away. Bombs away. (laughs) (laughs) This was where I noticed that Joe was in an all Paisley trouser suit. This is when you first figured that out? I think I'd been trying not to look at it. Okay, because I noticed it when she put the jacket on in episode one. I think I was trying to avoid actually looking at it. Yeah. And, And you know, this is where the writing's like, okay, we know we're going to make Joe a prisoner again, but it's not so bad if we imprison her with like almost everybody else, right? Yeah. Although, you know, just to show that the marshal is just awful, he goes down each of them, reads off the charges as to why they're going to be executed. And it's like treason, sedition, what have you, and just goes to Joe and goes, such a pity. <laughs> yeah. There's no actual charge for her. He's just going to murder her. Oh, if only he would have said something like, no, that's that pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Flagrant abuse of Paisley. <laughs> Crimes against fashion. oh boy but our boy jaeger comes to the rescue yes it's this weird thing where every once in a while i'm like okay jaeger's doing the right thing and then every once in a while i'm like and he's not anymore he's very wishy-washy he's playing both sides yeah poorly (laughs) yes (laughs) he's absolutely furious when he comes in because the rockets messed up and didn't detonate where they were meant to and are now poisoning the entire planet. And the marshal is so frustrating when he's like, well, how could you let this happen? And it's like, well, it was your fault. Yeah. <laughs> you did not give me the time to configure these properly. I told you to check them. Yep. That was so frustrating. But they're just tied up for a bit. And we do get Joe playing the damsel in distress, but not really in distress. And, you know, tricks the guard. And that made me happy, at least when that happens. 
she did the internet meme of call an ambulance, but not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such good continuity for her because mm-hmm. she did that escapology course that she mentioned in season eight. <laughs> I really love that. But let's talk about the biggest thing. Stubsy. Uh, Stubsy. <sighs> Too soon. But Cotton's reaction was beautiful and glorious. And the look on that man's face was just sheer determination. And he's like, I'm not going to let this get me down. I now have a mission and my mission is to end the marshal. And I was like, oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, it was the most dramatic. I mean, in an episode that had a whole lot of death, that was the most dramatic death. Mm-hmm. It was. And it was basically they were getting the report into the investigator, which Joe had to help them complete because poor Stubbs and Cotton had no idea how to send it in. <laughs> right. And there ended my dream of a Stubbs and Cotton kind of chips spinoff for Big Finish, where they, you know, go around and operate kind of like police officers would be great. We could get Stubbs and Cotton the early adventures. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, you can also do a, oh, hey, like after episode six, we found out that he's not actually dead. He's okay. <laughs> he was only mostly dead. But we do continue our get caught, escape, get caught, escape, get caught, escape, you know, as all of these things happen, especially when there's six episodes, because how else do you make it last six episodes? Back on Solos, I love how Sondergaard is there rallying the mutants who we find out can <laughs> understand him and can yeah. even talk a little bit. But that right there is just another example of the strangeness that I adore <laughs> of this serial of a man wearing that with a bald head, speaking some unknown accent <laughs> that changes every five seconds to a group of lobsters. It's uh, <laughs> it was an amazing moment because he was so impassioned. He really gave it all there when he was talking to me. You could feel his concern. It was good acting. Incidentally, for someone who is a bald-headed and clean-shaven man, John Hollis looks very distinctive, I think. Oh, yes. Yes. Ugh. I think he's a good-looking guy. He's the second most good-looking man there. Got Kai, then Sunderguard. I'll put a whole ranking in there for you, in which the Marshal is even lower than the last one, somehow. Is the Marshal lower than the Mutants? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> I mean, Cotton's going to be in the top five as well. This is how these things go. But, oh, those mandibles, you know, it's got to be higher than the Marshal. Yes. <laughs> And hooray for the Doctor and Jaeger getting Solos back to normal. And of course, the Marshal wants them to go further because that's been his MO this whole time. Mm-hmm. And he's just extreme on everything. We skipped over the Marshal's like further evidence of his insanity, basically, where he's like, maybe I should just kill the investigator. Well, he's kind of gets to a point where it's that whole line about like to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's like the yeah. marshal to every problem yeah. and solution is like, why not just kill him? Again, my question is, is he's talking about repopulating Solus. There's still a lack of women. So I'm really <laughs> curious as to how he plans on repopulation if there are no women around. Maybe that was the plot line on cloning that got cut. Well, we talked about Rick James's moment as Cotton doing the stubs of death. That was good. Cliffhanger here. Eh, not so good here. We'll be done for. Yeah, not the best there, but uh, and also not really great to work with because that cliffhanger written out just doesn't really work because it's just okay. And then the solution is, well, then I guess we should leave this room by going through this tube over here. So I guess it wasn't that big of an issue anyway. I don't know. That one fell flat. Maybe I was just on such a high from the whole exploding in the previous one. Incidentally, just that whole concept, the marshal being like, I'm going to shove Joe Cotton and Kai into the refueling chamber as hostages, even though I know this will kill them. It's just a bit bonkers. Again, he's unhinged. Yeah. And he loses all of his leverage over the doctor at that moment if he kills them. All right, episode six, let's go. And the investigator's costume is extremely silly. It's so bad. (laughs) Oh. I guess it's like a futuristic evolution of an English judge's outfit, but... (sighs) Complete with tinfoil hat. (laughs) Well, that's the wig. It's like this long tinfoil thing now. I know what it's supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. It's not. It then turns into a courtroom drama. Riley, this is your uh, Uh, wheelhouse. Well, you know, what they say about colonization and mutant law, they don't really go well together. (laughs) Although, can we talk about their ship docks and then stick it in, stick it in. (laughs) 
had to. Yeah, it's very phallic. Very, very much so. My first thought was, how in the world does what you stick in for fuel, like, how do you escape through that as well? I'm like, oh, just so convenient that it's just that you walk through it. I know you kind Mm -hmm. of briefly mentioned it, but we're actually in the episode. And I was just like, I don't understand how fueling works, apparently. Or they didn't understand how fueling works because it made no sense. We finally get our mutants on the sky base. You know, we have the full bunch of them, or not all of them, but a good bunch of them getting on there. And it's at that moment when you could see them clearly that I realized that how they moved was part acting choice and part that's just how they could only way they could move in those costumes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really like the costumes. I do. I thought they did an amazing job. It's some of the best costumes for, we'll call it alien species that I've seen in a long time. And I'm very impressed with it. And I'm wondering, what did they do with them after? They get reused. I don't remember if they're reused in Doctor Who, but I think they get reused in Blake 7, at least in part. Okay. But I have a feeling they parts of them might also be reused in Doctor Who. Hopefully they'll be reused in Doctor Who when RTD comes back, right? (laughs) (laughs) Bring some mutants back. Let's go. (laughs) I like it. I want to skip towards where we get with Kai changing because this is key. Mm. First off, is this where Stargate got the idea of the ascension of Daniel Jackson? Because he can turn invisible and he's all glowy and he's on like some other plane of existence which is what the ancients are in Stargate. That's just my hypothesis right there. But this is somehow just evolution. Which was the ancients were in evolution as well. No, I just mean oh. in this. It seems a little... Yes. A little... What? <laughs> Especially because since it seems to work on like some sort of cyclical basis, so they yeah. go from being farmers... <laughs> from warriors to bugs to godlike beings... <laughs> Now, I understand that the people came down and, you know, took away their culture and their history. But I think that's the kind of thing you'd remember on some level. Oh, by the way, in a few years, we're all turned into bugs. Just so you know. Yeah, for 500 years, right? So I was thinking maybe the bugs, like, lay eggs that stay dormant for a thousand years. So the super beings live for 500 years, then all die. And then a new generation is born after they're dead. So they just don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to headcanon this here, guys. <laughs> That's where I got kind of confused because then like, so there's just one item, only one that can change them from mutant bug form to... To rainbow death to, angels, to, yes. Yeah, to, to that or Kai and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> That's what I was so confused about. And because at the very end, when it's Sundergaard and Cotton, I'm like, so basically you guys are just going to have like a booth set up and like, all right, next one. Here you go. Here, Hold the rock for a while. Okay, next one. Here, hold the rock for a while. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be more, right? It's just not very effective. Like, how is that supposed to change the entire population? Maybe it's better in the book. At least it's better than turning it into a liquid and injecting him with it because then it's all gone. Yeah, that's true. And how the hell would they get that naturally if if they actually did that? And who knows? Maybe he needs to get boosted. (laughs) (laughs) We need to finish up with the Marshal because as we talked about how unhinged acting wise, he really just goes all out in the big finale, right? Really goes for it. To summarize this, he basically gets exonerated and then decides, you know what, investigator, I'm now going to imprison you and force you to recolonize this planet. And then he's expecting more investigation to come for what just happened. He's like, yeah, I'll just ship them down there, too. (laughs) and Just keep pushing them down. Quite, (laughs) quite bonkers. But I will say this, the marshal has such a, and you guys are going to hate me for saying this, he's got such a love for killing all the mutants. I gotta say, he and the Brigadier should get a beer sometime. Talk a little (laughs) little genocide. You know, swap some stories. Wow. Oh, boy. But he goes down in a blaze of glory because Kai just comes in and he's like, and you're dead now. Because (laughs) apparently you can do that when you're on some other, you know, plane of existence. And we get this resolution. I kind of am interested in how this resolution plays out because it's, okay, we're going to fix the atmosphere. Check. We're going to put some things in place so that Kai is going to go help and make sure that all the mutants get changed. Check. And hey, guess what? Cotton's in charge. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah, he goes from being to what I'm sure the Marshal and co was like a relatively low standing guard to being acting commander. Way to promotion. Yeah. Also, before we wrap up, can we very briefly touch on Kai basically just killing the Marshal and the Doctor 
doesn't condemn it. There's nothing about how he should have faced justice. He's just killed and everyone's okay with that. I think that the marshal has gone so far and has gotten in the way of the doctor so much that I'm actually not as surprised. If the marshal had any sort of, hey, these are really the reasons why I'm doing it and they weren't so just, I'm going to kill everyone because I can, I think he would have been a little bit more worried about it. But I think that the marshal just, there was nothing you could do. And the doctor delivered the package. He'd done what he was sent there to do. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's true. He should have been out of the story in, this, in the second episode, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> I do really love the symmetry as we close this out of having to break back into storage area four, just as they broke out of it once the TARDIS landed. They now have to break back into it to get mm -hmm. to the TARDIS. I think that's rather neat. That and the alarm, the PA alarm on the storage <laughs> door at the end, that was yeah. a great joke. I really did enjoy that joke and to go out like that. Yep. Really enjoyed it. All right, before, very, very quickly, I want to nominate the psychedelic disco caves as being a little bit campy. Oh, okay. All right. I thought you were about to say Kai's transformed outfit would have... Ooh. Plus two to the camp count. Yeah. He just got out of the movie Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> nice. With that, we will go ahead and wrap up and score this thing. And I get to start this time. And this story isn't perfect. It's kind of flawed, but I still really, really enjoy it. It's campy, it's silly, but there's a lot of running up and down corridors and getting captured and set free and recaptured and escaping and so on. I mean, it's definitely not perfect, but there's just, there's something about it I enjoy. Pertwee continues to not be a dick, which is nice. We get dickery from others. The Marshal is so wonderfully hateful. Sondergaard is delightful. I love the double act of Stubbs and Cotton. There's some weird direction in it, which I really actually quite enjoy. And it tackles real world issues and i didn't really recognize that as a seven-year-old but as a 34-year-old i definitely do and i kind of appreciate it so there are some negatives so i think i'm going to give this one seven bug-eyed monsters vetoed by sydney newman out of ten <laughs> don we'll go with you next i don't think i enjoyed this story quite as much as Anthony did this is one of those stories where it's difficult for me because i wasn't absolutely in love with it but it also has a lot of really good aspects. I enjoyed the acting for the most part. The direction was really good. As we stated before, the music wasn't offensive. <laughs> That's high praise coming from us. I like the fact that it touched on, you know, a lot of different political themes as much as I poke fun at, oh, look, it's another anti-colonialist one. It mixed it up. There was elements from a bunch of different empires, so to speak. At the same time, it's a little overstuffed and a little too long. And I think I would have liked it better if maybe the marshal had a bit more of a reason besides just being a crazy asshole. And maybe if Varen had learned anything. But still, it is not a bad story. It's somewhat above average. So I'm going to give it six and a half rainbow death angels out of ten. <laughs> Perfect. Julie. We've pretty much covered most everything. I enjoyed it. I think it was very padded. I think this could have been cut down to four episodes and it would have kept most everything that you needed. But I loved most of the costumes until we got to the last episode. The Marshal was just nuts and a really, really great villain in that I hated him the entire time. <laughs> and yeah, I just somehow found myself having a lot more fun than I was expecting. And I will give it seven my own crushes out of ten <laughs> <laughs> and riley last but very much not least over to you my friend this one is quite a mixed bag some really interesting things here as we discussed the camera work i enjoyed the whole salonian mystery element some not so interesting things like we have another horrible leader character and another colonization story there's more humor in this era than i remember seeing in quite a while on the show also, there's just a downright strange feeling going on throughout the whole serial. Bizarre imagery and choices, so you know I absolutely loved that. I believe that it is one of those that had a potential to be quite good, just needed some editing, maybe turn down the setting on the weirdo meter from Jared Leto down to like a Shia LaBeouf. So I give it seven Solonian commemorative plate deliveries out of ten. Nice. That gives us a story average of 6.88, which is so far the weakest of the season. 
this story actually gets a little bit of a beating in fandom. So I think overall, even though we all had a few criticisms of it, I think we enjoyed it a bit more than its reputation would have it. So that's pretty cool. But with that, we are sadly out of time. We've reached the end of our discussion. Next episode, we'll be heading back to Earth as we discuss the season nine finale, The Time Monster. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Flagrant Abuse of Paisley, was recorded on Wednesday the 5th of January 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you feel like you're changing for the worse, it's still possible, albeit extremely, extremely unlikely, that you'll eventually transform into an ethereal super being.